guys, alright, calm down, we're here now, you join us on the Strange and Deadly Show, brought to you by Gentleman's Grindhouse Records, of course, on the show we discuss films on the Section 3 list related to the video nasties, we pair up our films every fortnight based on a theme, you can find out more information about all of our podcasts over at gentlemansgrindhouserecords.com and you can subscribe on iTunes and buy any podcatcher you might be using give you that information again and also tell you how you can get your feedback and comments over to us at the end of the show but here we are again it's been uh, well, I guess there was a week's delay on this episode I had some family staying in uh, my name is Christopher Clayton you already know that though you know me I'm very famous on the internet world on the internet world in the internet land I don't know how to say it just rambling now who am I joined by you're joined by Tom Elliott, also from the land of the internet. The land of the internet. You say it so much more eloquently than I ever could, my <laughs> friend. Uh, happy Halloween to everybody out there. I say that Halloween's already finished, of course. I hope you had a good one uh, to all of you listeners out there. Tom, how was yours? Strange as it is for me being such a horror fan, I've never really been one for doing much on Halloween, to be honest. So this year was no exception. Just turn the lights off and hope no one knocks at the door. You sound like a grouchy old fucker, <laughs> I have to say. I mean, my Halloween was quite boring, really. I watched two movies, uh, one mm-hmm. of which was Trick or Treat, the uh, anthology Good. film, which I, you know, re-watching it again, um, own it on Blu-ray now. I really think that's a bit of a modern classic. It's so well put together, Tom. That Sam character, it just seems like something that could really go and go. Mm. Um, and it's uh, just strange to... It never really had a sequel or, or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of mishandled even at the time. You know, it was supposed to be released in theatres, I think, it, given a much wider release. And for some reason, it was just sort of put on the back burner, never really got, you know, it's due, I think. Sort of one of those cult classic films. I just love the way everything's interwoven together. And like you say, the character of Sam should be, I think, you know, more iconic uh, mm. than he is. But uh, yeah, I watched that. And then I watched one I hadn't seen before, which is The Babadook. Uh, it's on Netflix now, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it came out last year. Um, very hyped film, I think. was It was really quite quite popular. It had a good critical reception. Um, have you seen that one, Tom? I haven't, but now it's on Netflix. I will get round to it. It's worth looking at. I mean, there's some really interesting ideas in it. I don't think it quite nails everything. Uh, mm. But what it, you know, obviously, I offer any spoilers on it. But uh, it, it, yeah, there's some interesting ideas, psychological ideas. I'll say that much. Where you. You look at it, and I think there are a couple of moments where they sort of drop the ball a bit. But, you know, really interesting Australian horror film. And um, I was afraid that it was just going to be a very sort of generic, you know, two people against a CGI ghost kind of movie. And it actually isn't that at all. You know, it really sort of plays with some interesting, you know, like I say, psychological ideas. So I'll watch that. Uh, Tom, Mm. apart from Halloween, let's get away from Halloween. Uh, Let's talk about some of the releases we've got in recently, because I know you and I in particular have mm-hmm. uh, uh, enjoying a particular release, Tom, that came out, when was it, last week? Uh, the Hellraiser Scarlet Trilogy box set, Tom. It is. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I took pictures of it. It's up on my Instagram. Tom also did a an unboxing video of it mm-hmm. where he sort of, you know, explored all the materials in there. It's just so well put together, isn't it? I mean, it's, it reminds me a bit of the... The Videodrome set, which is also gorgeous. But this is, yeah. you know, Videodrome I, I like very much. I, I own that set. But Hellraiser is very, very close to my heart, particularly the first three. And um, I would say this is a pretty definitive package. I haven't watched the films yet, Tom. Have you got a chance to, to have a look at any of the transfers on that? I've watched the first one. I'm, you know, I'm not an AV expert, to be honest. No. I'm kind of like, I, you know, I like what I like. It, it looks good to me. I've never, you know, I've never seen it look better. I've got a new 
50 inch tv now so oh, lovely which is nice so watching it on that was good but yeah it looks good i've been dipping into the special features here and there and it was interesting that there's edited down versions of that documentary leviathan on it yeah but arrow have also done some stuff that complements it quite nicely it's like they haven't stepped on the toes of leviathan they've done stuff that sits nicely with leviathan you know what i mean which is which is quite good it really is i mean leviathan of course is that you know feature length well feature feature length it's absolutely massively long isn't it the uh leviathan documentary Mm. that you could buy separately i think you can still buy it um, but not the the limited edition version with that sort of Julia O case. Um, but yeah, or uh, O uh, slip cover rather. Uh, but yeah, it's it's sort of I haven't had a chance really to delve into anything on it. I think I'll probably have a bit of a Hellraiser marathon and um, you know watch all three back to back or something like that. But it, it, I just sort of think that a company like Arrow Video, this is the the company really that I want to kind of do everything. You know, like I want them to get hold of the Friday the Thirteenth franchise and. And, you know, and really special. Can you imagine like a box set that's sort of themed around Jason and Camp Crystal Lake? You can just imagine how lavish it would be, you know. This is the thing, isn't it? You know, Paramount fannied around with the the Friday the 13th box set for years. We got ones with sort of half our special features on this, that and the other. And it was all always a case of, well, we can't justify the cost. Well, you know, I would imagine... Friday the 13th as a series has probably grossed more than Hellraiser Yeah, as a series. Just purely for the fact that Hellraiser was straight to video for, you know, more than half the film. Well, yeah, more than half the films now. So for Arrow to, to be able to put together something like this kind of blows that argument out of the water, you know what I mean? Paramount should have been able to do a Friday the 13th box set that was really... You know, something special. Thankfully, someone else came along and did Crystal Lake Memories. So, you know, if you've got a sort of combination of those releases, then you can kind of get what you want from the whole thing. But, you know, you're absolutely right. Arrow have shown how you should do it. I just hope, and I know there's issues with the sequels, but I hope there's a Scarlet Box 2 and 3. You know, if they, if they put three movies each in two more box sets, I think that would be great. That would be nice. I mean, I don't... I don't really see that happening just because the first three seem to be the ones with the best reputations and particularly the first two, really. Um, mm-hmm. The third one is sort of viewed as being quite a bit weaker than, than the first two, but still has some 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 real merit to it. I, I enjoy that one. Um, I can't imagine it happening. But I think the thing is that, you know, Arrow Video respects these movies and cares about them, whereas Paramount has quite clearly hated Friday the 13th. Really, from the very beginning, you know, they sort of tried to kill it off several times and they couldn't because of the amount of money they were making. So they kept it going purely from a, you know, from a financial standpoint. I think that's the problem. I mean, you, you mentioned the Friday the 13th box set there. I don't know if you know, but I managed to get that recently. Um, yeah, yeah. There was, which I was so excited about. There was a little, it's a very limited voucher deal that was going on on eBay. It was only running for about five hours. And um, you could get 20% off your basket over a certain, I think it was over an order of £20 or more. And I thought, this is my chance. Um, yeah. I'll finally sort of try and secure that. And I managed to get the Friday the 13th. But, and it's a, it's a nice set. You know, it's a nice collectible tin. It, it, nothing in comparison to the Hellraiser box set. But it's, a, you know, it's, it's got a couple of little extra bits in there and a booklet, a sort of cut down version of the Crystal Lake Memories book, which I own a first print version of, by the way. A massive mm. bloody coffee table kind of book. Uh, but yeah, no, I I agree with you. I, it just is. It's a sign of great respect, I think, and and love of this particular genre that Ara can do something like this. And that Scarlet Box set is, uh, 
I think it's a bit of a work of art, really. I can't wait to d- to dig into it. It is. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, but yeah, uh, apart from that, a couple of records from um, Death Waltz Recording. Mm. You make me very jealous with this, Tom. Like, I really want to get into vinyl, <laughs> partly to collect these. Man, your wallet won't thank you, to be honest. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get everything. I, I used to be quite like, oh, I've got to get everything, but there's just too much now. But I got uh, the soundtrack to the beyond you know one of my favorite horror movies of all time and i think it's got one of the best soundtracks of all time and uh also i went to see two years ago on halloween it was i went to see fabio frizzi Mm -hmm. uh the composer in london it was in this beautiful old church and he was playing music from his fulci films the beyond zombie flesh eaters and a magical show magical experience to be there uh, and thankfully, Death Waltz have put it on a double vinyl album, so I've got that there too. So, so yeah, I've got some nice stuff. Oh, Tom, you're making me jealous. Oh. <laughs> no, they look so you know they look gorgeous. Now, I've I've made a sort of pact with myself really that eventually next year maybe I'll start sort of collecting vinyl, and I'm not going to do a thing where I want I don't want to build a massive collection, just certain things, you know. And, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, some of those soundtracks, like you say, I mean, chances are by then those records would have sold out anyway. But, you know, I just sort of like the idea of... There's something about, you know, sort of grabbing... I mean, I've got some vinyl there, but I don't have a player. And it's just something about looking at the artwork and sort of... And looking at all the bits and pieces, you always get a lot of little extra bits with the, with vinyl releases that um, yeah. that you can look at. And there's something very special about it. And um, yeah, I was, you know, mouth-watering looking at your pictures. Yeah. Well, I've always said, for me, it's, you know, people will say, oh, vinyl sounds better. I don't know that, to be honest. it's I'm not that much of a, an audiophile to kind of know these things. But for me, it's all about, like you say, you know, sitting back putting that record on when i put a cd on you know i'll go and wash the dishes or you know but but when i put a record on it's almost got this ritualistic thing to it i put on the turntable i listen to the music i open up the cover look at the artwork read the liner notes you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it's taking time out and that's what i love about it yeah there's something sort of brilliantly ceremonial about that that i want to get in on uh, Mm. make me own cult but um, it it is uh, but you know what tom they're listening. Go they're on. listening to this episode at home, and they're going, "Shut up, Chris and Tom. Get on with the show." So I think that's what we'll do, Tom. I think we'll get on okay. with the show now. On the last episode, of course, we explored a slasher theme. Now, I think it's fair to say that the two slashers we covered, which are all oh, reaching into my memory banks, "Home Sweet Home" and "Honeymoon Horror," mm. uh, we consider them to be, yeah, pretty <laughs> bottom of the barrel, really. Yeah. Uh, we're stepping up now. We're continuing the slasher theme for this episode. And um, we said on the last episode, and I think it's fair to say, that we're sort of stepping up to the mid-tier of the slasher, the slasher subgenre, as it were. Uh, Tom, what can you tell us about the films on this episode? You're absolutely right. Last time we were talking about two pretty much forgotten slashers, and we were seeing whether they deserved their place in or not to have a place in slasher history. And you're right, last time round, it was kind of like... Well, they deserve where they are, really. So I think coming to this one, it's going to be interesting. Again, they are these mid-tier slashers, and it is Prom Night, the Jamie Lee Curtis uh, slasher movie, and also The Prowler, which I think in the UK was known as Rosemary's Killer. And uh, yeah, so mid-tier slashers, do they deserve to be 
higher up the ladder or not. That's what we're going to find out tonight. Yeah, we absolutely are. And I think what you're going to see here really is that there's, you know, what makes it a mid-tier slasher? Well, I think what we're going to find out is whether... How does that happen? Is it the filmmaking that perhaps is better? Is there a bit more polish to it? We're going to get into that. Let's uh, mm. start with Prom Night, Tom, which I'm going to tell you about. Now, I've seen both of these before. I know you had seen The Prowler as well, but you'd never seen Prom Night. I hadn't, no. I've I've got the box set of all four movies, but I've just never got around to watching any of them. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be interesting. So let me read you the synopsis and the information for Prom Night. Uh, it's also known as nothing, <laughs> apart from a bunch of foreign titles that I couldn't be bothered to list. Um, it was released in 1981. Uh, sorry, it was released in 1980 and released in 1981 in the UK. And it was directed by Paul Lynch and it was written by William Gray and Robert Guzer Jr. So here's the synopsis for this one. It's 1974, and 10-year-old Robin Hammond arrives outside an old abandoned house with her brother Alex and sister Kim, both of whom head off for school, leaving Robin to investigate the house. Inside are Wendy, Kelly, Jude and Nick, a group of 11-year-old friends playing hide-and-seek. They don't take too kindly to Robin's interruption, taunting and upsetting her as she backs away in desperation. Tragedy strikes when Robin leans against an old window and topples out of it, falling to her death on the ground below. Though the kids are shocked and afraid, Wendy makes them all promise they'll never tell anyone what happened, and so they take off as the window comes crashing down on Robin, spearing her with shards of broken glass. An unseen figure arrives, casting a shadow on the dead body. Six years pass and the Hammond family have tried to move on. Robin's death was wrongly attributed to a local sex offender who is promptly in prison for the crime. The memories still haunt her father, Mr Hammond, played by Leslie Nielsen, and mother, Kim, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is preparing for tonight's prom, as is her brother Alex, who is handling the music for the event. There's a frenzy about the school as everyone searches for dates, and a rivalry opens up between Kim and Wendy over Wendy's ex-boyfriend Nick. It seems that Nick ended the relationship in order to date Kim, and Wendy just won't let it go. Yes, all of those kids who pledge silence have grown up, and all of them are preparing for the prom too. Also in the mix is resident dirtball Lou, who has a crush on Kim, and is forceful with it too. As the students prepare for prom night, a mysterious unseen person is making calls to the four people responsible for Robin's death and crossing their names out after making the calls. The local police have heard that the sex offender in prison for Robin's death has escaped and has taken a nurse hostage. The detective is concerned about him possibly returning to town. Could the mysterious caller be him? If so, what connection does he have to Robin? Suspicion also falls on the creepy school janitor who continually stares at Kim and the other students. We build up to night time and the prom has begun. With everyone in attendance and having fun dancing to disco, no one is aware that a deranged killer is stalking the halls of the school. Dressed all in black with a balaclava over his or her face, the killer begins taking out the kids who contributed to Robin's death all those years ago. Just who could it be? All will be revealed on a very bloody prom night as the guilty students fight for their lives against a raging maniac. We've got to get somebody. Quick. Are you crazy? They'll put us in jail. If we tell anyone, they'll say it's our fault. Who believe it was an accident? But what if... Listen to me. We'll go home now and never, ever tell anyone. No one but us will ever know. Jude, swear? I swear. Kelly? Kelly! I don't want to go to jail. Swear. I swear. Nick? Nick! I'll never tell. Good. Let's go. So, Tom, you are a prom night virgin. Quite a mixed bag for me, this one. Mm -hmm. 
quite a mixed bag you know as slasher films go it ticks all those boxes doesn't it the, all the tropes are there you know some tragedy in the past i mean this one we're going with the the who done it slasher aren't we yeah that's uh, that's the kind of formula for this one but yeah we've got some some events coming up which everyone's going to you know which gives it its sort of name and everything i don't think it's a bad movie at all i, I think Production wise, it's well made. A couple of good kills in it. We'll we'll go into them more a bit later on. I think the main issue is we've got an hour there where nothing happens. You know, there's there's no kills. There's just people milling around. There's sort of these nondescript detectives working on the case. You know, just just very bland characters. So by the time it really gets going, I, I'm really starting to look at my watch. But you know, when things kick off, it's it's all right. I've seen worse slashes and I've seen a lot better. I think it's all right. I, I can't see myself giving it a second watch. I mean, my general thoughts are it's well made, production values are good, but the pacing really is what puts me off it. How about you? Yeah, you're not going to get much debate from me, really, Tom. Uh, I've seen this a few times now and watching it again this time, I, mean, I haven't seen it for, for a number of years, really, probably about six or seven. And... Um, this is the first time since then that I've watched this and thought, why have I watched this a couple of times? Because there really is, there's not really a lot that happens, you know. Uh, it, certainly, I mean, I actually had a look at the old timeline when I was playing it, and it takes an hour and two minutes before there's a single kill. That's wow. when the first kill comes in. Now, of course, you get the death at the beginning of the film with uh, Robin, the little girl. That's it. The rest of it is all set up, really. Yeah. And... I do think, you know, obviously we'll, we'll sort of go more into the, the you know, in de- detailed, uh, go more into the details of the plot, can't get me words out today. Uh, but I would say the last sort of 25 minutes or so, I do think it, it, it speeds up nicely and it sort of gets going. But it just takes too long to get there, doesn't it? That's the, that's the big issue. And also, most of these characters are fairly hollow. And I think that's what makes it the most difficult, is we're not watching any sort of great you know, a setup of great characters in particular. It really is just... What they're doing, really, is they're spending an hour setting up these these red herrings. So you've got, yeah. you know, there's the school janitor who's pretty much got red herring written all over his face, you know. <laughs> I mean, you, you know from the very beginning, no, he's not the killer. Of course he isn't the killer, you know. But they... Um, but like you say, who done it? And I sort of... I tend to, you know, with the exception of Friday the 13th and Halloween, you know, franchises like that, who you know who the killer is, I quite like a whodunit. And it maybe it comes from my, you know, love of, of the old Italian giallo that I enjoy. That it's definitely more tradi- This is definitely a more traditional slasher than, than the ones that we, you know, we reviewed on the last show. You know, Home Sweet Home, for example, you see the killer and you know exactly who he is from, the from you know, moment one. And Honeymoon Horror tries to have a little bit of mystery in it, but really you, you sort of know fairly early on who it is. This one, you're guessing throughout the entire thing. Now, let me ask you this, because uh, this is your first time watching it, of course. Did you have any suspicions as to who the killer would be? I mean, did you get it right early on? I didn't, no. I um, I saw a cover to it. You know, I actually thought it might end up being Jamie Lee Curtis, because mm-hmm. when you see start to see the killer... He's very, he's very lithe, isn't he? He's very sort of um, slender and yeah. jumping around. And I thought, and I'd actually seen a, a DVD cover with a picture of Jamie Lee Curtis on the cover holding an axe. Yeah. And I thought maybe that's just the you know the most spoilerific DVD cover ever. Um, 
so I didn't know, you know, I didn't guess it. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess we'll get to the the actual killer himself, but I there's some things about that that I, I really quite like. Yeah, me too. I think they actually did a pretty good job. You know, I mean, obviously watching this, I already knew who the killer was, so there was no mystery for me. But I remember the first time I watched it thinking, I didn't really see that coming, you know. And when you yeah. and when you do see it coming, you think, oh, okay, well, that actually does make sense given what happened at the beginning of the movie. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought they sort of did a, a fairly good job at keeping that mystery alive throughout it. But so let's sort of talk about the first, you know, about the first hour of it. We've got, well, first of all, we've got Leslie Nielsen, who is the father of these of these three children. Uh, now, I'm going to talk more about Leslie Nielsen later on. It's probably not going to be a great revelation to any of you because you know Leslie Nielsen very well. But this was actually just before he was on the cusp of becoming known as a, com- a comedic actor. And would then yeah. and would reinvent his career with you know airplane and police squad and then the naked gun movies and become then became and it's it's quite strange I think for people certainly people who grew up watching the naked gun movies to 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 know that Leslie Nielsen was really considered much more of a serious actor before he did those those movies and and then moved and reinvented himself as more of a comedian but it um not doesn't get a lot to do in this does he really he doesn't I don't want to be a disservice to the man because you know he was a good actor. Hmm. But he was such a master at deadpanning, wasn't he? That when you do go back and look at some of his older stuff now, you just you're just expecting him to to come out with something like Frank Drebin or yeah. you know or the Doctor off airplane kind of thing because he he was just so good at delivering those those one liners with a straight face. So it is quite difficult. But yeah, he doesn't get much to do. I guess he's uh, he's just paying the bills with this one. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Airplane came out the same year, so it's right. you know he sort of did this little slasher and then went on to do Airplane, which was quite a big success. So, you know, I guess you could say that really be you know put more put a lot more effort into that one. I mean, there is a scene in this where he's dancing in the disco with Jamie Lee Curtis, and it does look <laughs> it looks a bit comical. You know, you almost expect him to do something crazy like you know yeah. fall over on the on the floor and topple over all the students or something. You know. But it, or you know, you you turn around and O.J. Simpson is falling down a flight of stairs. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Jamie Lee Curtis herself. Now, of course, you know Jamie Lee Curtis came to prominence with Halloween in 1978, and had this little spell of of horror movies, really, and then made a very conscious effort to leave it later on. I'll go into details on that later. I sort of think that she's she does the best that again it's a fairly hollow character i think she does the best that she can and there there is an assured quality to her i think that you can tell that she was always meant to do more than this of course we're always going to compare her to laurie strode if we see her in another slasher movie aren't we and the difference is quite big she is very self-assured in this one she's playing a character with a lot of confidence whereas laurie strode was very mousy kind of uh, shy character but I always enjoy watching her. She she's got she's certainly got something that I I like, you know. And she was in that other movie Terror Train as well, wasn't she? Which another another slasher, which I, I'd quite like to see. But yep. um, yeah, Scream Queen era Jamie Lee Curtis, I'm a fan. Yeah, and I just like her in general. I mean, there was an interview that popped up recently where she's like a. It turns out she's a big fan of Street Fighter, and um, oh, he's right. actually a you know a proper fan, not just somebody who's seen you know. Her children playing Street Fighter. She actually is a big fan of it and everything, and has gone to a uh, a convention with her family dressed up as a Street Fighter character and stuff like that. <laughs> and she seems quite cool and everything. But in the interview, she basically said that she doesn't like horror movies at all and she doesn't watch right. them. And um, 
so that was interesting. So I, I think it's sort of one of those things where she kind of got her career kick-started with horror and then thought, OK, I've, I'm sort of starting to get the same roles being offered to me all the time, which is the, you know, the final girl in a slasher movie. So I think I'm going to make a very conscious decision to move away from this. And she ended up becoming a very big actress, um, yeah, very big in the mainstream. And we'll talk about that as we go. Yeah, yeah. But so I think, you know, she's, a, you know, quite decent in this. Yeah, and you know, fair enough. I don't, you know, bear any ill will for that. I mean, look at Danielle Harris. I think there comes a time in any actor or actress's uh, career when they are just getting those horror roles where they kind of have to decide, right, am I going to try and break out of this or do I embrace it and, you know, stick with it? Danielle Harris has embraced it and stuck with it. Yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis. Thought she'd try something different and fair play, you know. She's not beholden to anyone to keep doing the same thing. So, you know, I respect her decision. Yeah, so do I. And also, I think we tend to get a little bit tetchy sometimes when we hear that, you know, a particular director like Sam Raimi, for example, was never a particularly big fan of horror movies. Now, it's funny you think that way when you look at, you know, uh, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. And, you know, you, you sort of think to yourself, how can that guy not be a fan of horror? But he really wasn't. Um, it, it, you know, and you might sort of think it kind of rubs you up the wrong way a bit, like, oh, I kind of wish they were into it. Some really are, you know, but, um, but no, I think she, you know, in her very early horror roles, I think she was always, I think there's, there's a quality about her. There's a wisdom to her that I think you can, you can tell she was always, always meant for more. Now, so moving aside from, from Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, let's talk about the killer. I actually quite like him in some ways. Mm-hmm. I think as a as a memorable killer, you know, he's just a guy dressed in black with a ski mask on. So there's there's not that much to him. It's quite creepy though, isn't it? I mean, it's quite a sort of creep. I mean, if you saw that guy in a dark at the end of a dark hallway chasing you, I think there's a it's a creepy image. Uh, to a degree, you know. But like I said before, he's not a he's not a massive guy. Mm-hmm. He's quite sprightly, you know. The van kill where he. Uh, he kills the the couple who have had sex in the van. He sort of jumps off the roof like Spider Man, doesn't he? He's, you know, he's very sprightly. He's not the kind of killer where I think I would get away from that guy. He's the kind of killer where I think I could have a go at you. You know what I mean? You come to me face to face. I've got a chance here. And to be honest, that's what happens. He gets his ass kicked in the end. Yeah, but you're you're fucking built like a brick shit house, Tom. I mean, you know, you you would just give him one punch to the face and he'd crumble, you know. Me, I'm f- you know, slow and fat. So I would definitely be, you know, on the dinner table so to speak. You know, he'd make a meal out of me. But no, I see what you're saying. I mean, yeah, that that he he sort of bungles that um or nearly, you know, bungles that um bungles is that the right word? Zippy, George and Bungle? <laughs> uh, you know, he, he fumbles it, I think would be the yeah. better way. He fumbles the uh, the van thing, but he does manage to kill the girl. Um, I don't know. I, I just think it's quite a creepy image, really. But like you say, yeah, he's not a particularly... He's not like Jason Voorhees, who comes in like this hulking no. mass of evil. You know, he is a... I suppose what you could say is he's a very human killer. You know, you look at someone like Michael Myers, and there is something that is very supernatural about him, I think. Whereas yeah. this is just a guy, you know, I guess we've given it away that the killer is a guy. Uh, it, it, it's just a guy, isn't it? Just a very small guy. But he still manages to, you know, make quick work of the people that he's targeting here. It sounds like I'm damning him for not being a hulking brute like Jason or something. But at the same time, while he, I didn't find him to be particularly intimidating or, or scary, I, I use that term loosely because... Who's scared by horror films these days, you know? Anyway, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But, <laughs> yeah. um, that's a podcast in itself. 
Yeah, but at the same time, I I like I like that he's fallible. He he can be beaten. It turns out he's actually just this broken up kid who's broken up at what happened to his sister, and he's taking revenge. But you know, and he does end up getting his ass kicked because he isn't Jason Voorhees. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that it was actually quite refreshing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've given it away there, so we might as well say. That it turns out that the killer is actually the sister of uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character and Robin, who's the little girl who died at the beginning of the movie. Basically, as a little boy, the the shadow that you see cast over the dead body, well, it's him, and he's seen that these are the people who who, you know, um, killed his sister more or less. And uh, he grows up and he decides to take revenge on all the people who uh, who contributed to the murder of his sister and. Uh, like you say, he's sort of quite a pleasant character through the whole thing. He does get into a fight with the the big bully in the movie, Lou. And I think yeah. in that scene, I thought it was interesting watching it this time, you can tell that he's got some fighting ability. And you can sort of see that he ca- he's got some momentum and he can move around a bit, you know. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, when you watch the movie again, knowing that he's the killer, you can see, okay, I can kind of see the physicality, even though he's a very small guy, I can kind of see how his physicality could work. Uh, but like you say, the the final fight in the movie is against Nick, who is the really the only one of the of the kids to have grown up feeling some regret. I think over the fact mm. that he, you know, they'd kept this secret that they'd contributed to the death of of uh, of this young girl, and now of course he's dating Kim, who was the sister of that girl, and he feels some some real, I think, some real regret over that. What a couple of times wants to confess to her, in fact, that that he, you know, he was involved in that to some degree, and. Uh, I guess he's going to get a chance to <laughs> based on the end of this movie because <laughs> uh, yeah and then we find so what happens is it's actually his sister who sort of thwacks him with an axe and I guess does him some some terrible head trauma of some description mm. because he sort of you know he's I guess we should we should say really Tom you know building up to the ending of this there are some kills here of course um, yeah. not particularly gory but not you know, not blood bloodless either. I mean, there's quite a nice beheading. I think the the first kill as well um, was it Kelly. I think a girl called Kelly. She gets her throat cut, yeah. and you don't actually see the cut on screen, but you hear it, and you hear this sort of gurgly, bloody noise as she's getting her throat cut, which I think is quite effective. You know, yeah. and there's this, there's always this debate. I mean, some people will say, you know, the things you don't see are more effective than the things you see. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it depends on the project itself, you know, what the filmmaker's trying to achieve. Sometimes I want to see stuff. Um, so, you know, that's a whole other debate as well. But, um, yeah, the, the kills are okay. You know, the the axe kill later on was quite good. Again, uh, the use of sound with that. They're not the best, but I think they're okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned the axe kill there. I believe you're referring to the death of Wendy, who is the, yeah. the big bitchy girl in the movie. You know, she's the one who, as a child, she was the one who said, you know, look, we can't tell anybody about this, okay? I mean, obviously had no concern for the death of this young girl whatsoever and grows up to be a major bitch, basically, and has this big mm-hmm. rivalry with Kim. And I think probably the best... I think it's probably the best sequence in the movie, really, which is this big chase scene that happens where she's trying to get away from the killer. You know, he's sort of trapped her in a bathroom and she manages to get out and then he's chasing her around and, and we see that he is fallible i mean that's the thing you know he's not just this raging hulking mass of a killer you know jason is very efficient is a very efficient killer you know when he wants to kill somebody he usually gets his way this guy is yeah. chasing this girl and she's managing to get away you know and yeah she hides in like a sort of storeroom doesn't she 
and she does yeah and there's paint dripping onto the floor and the killer uh whose name is alex actually i think that that was his name uh, he uh finds her and you don't actually see the kill itself but like you say you hear it so you hear the sort of him hitting her with the axe a few times and yeah quite effective i, I, I mean that is you know in, in a slasher movie that the really bitchy character is the one that you want to see get off in the most grisly way so i wouldn't have minded that yeah but uh, yeah. not bad at all and then we can talk about the um the scene in the van where this couple are having sex and they sort of finish doing that this sleazy dude smoking a joint talk about a sex pest i mean <laughs> my god yeah <laughs> what lesson is this town does if you want to have sex with a girl just be as sleazy as you can pull up to a with a, in a van and just my god what a sex pest anyway sorry carry on <laughs> yeah he absolutely is and she falls for it i mean that's the thing women don't fall for that please don't do it no. but um i think quite a, quite a cool little kill really where the van doors get you know opened by the killer and he stabs her to death uh, quite good and then he has this sort of you know this uh, rumble with the uh, with the sleazy guy, and the guy ends up driving his uh, van off the uh, off a ridge there, and it explodes. I never understood that movie logic that the van would would uh, tumble off a cliff or a bridge of or a ridge of some kind, and then immediately explode upon you know in midair <laughs> on impact. Yeah. Uh, so there's that, and then we have the, the I think probably the most gory kill. It's not particularly gory though, is it? But I will say the most graphic kill is the beheading of Lou, who's this complete ape of a guy. What a horrible character he was. <laughs> yeah. Just the, but I'll tell you what, they it was good casting because you just look at that guy and he just looks like a like an idiot. <laughs> I mean he's got that sort of, you know, brutish ape like quality to him. He's, you know, arranged this sort of or Wendy has arranged this plan to try and scare um Kim and Nick um as revenge for them going out together. And uh well, he doesn't get to do that because he gets the old noggin chopped off. That is the end of That's him. Right. And, of course, all the people at the uh, the disco. Um, I want to say, quickly say something about the disco before we, we finish off on the on the ending there. About an hour into this movie, it briefly, for a couple of minutes, turns into Saturday Night Fever, doesn't it, Tom? It does. And I can't actually say the dancing was that great. I mean, it had its moments, but it, it was more like you, you just sit and look at it in disbelief i found you know what i mean yeah it was hardly john travolta you know it was uh, it was quite comical I, I was thinking more of the girl in troll 2 you know when she mm-hmm. does that dance in front of the mirror have you seen troll 2 i've only seen it once but um i don't particularly remember that scene but now you're making me want to re-watch troll 2 it would just just uh youtube the dance scene in, in troll 2 and you'll see it okay and it's sort of quite reminiscent of jamie lee curtis the way <laughs> She's dancing in that. And you also will notice, Tom, there are a couple of disco songs in this that sound quite similar to really famous disco songs. And it's because right. there were, I can't, unfortunately I didn't write them down, but there are a couple of very, very famous disco songs that they were originally dancing to when they were filming it. And they ah. couldn't get the rights to it. And so they ended up writing original songs that sounded quite like them. And it resulted in a lawsuit that was like $10 million. So uh, don't do that. Don't 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 rip off songs because uh, it ain't going to work for you. But um, so anyway, after Saturday Night Fever and uh, all the various kills that have happened, the old uh, beheading takes place and the head rolls down the aisle and all of the students there who are dancing at the disco see it. There's mania happening everywhere. And the killer finally comes out and has this confrontation with Nick and uh, Kim. And uh, she thwacks him with the axe and he sort of stumbles outside and falls to the ground. But, I mean, before that happens, she's looked at him and she can tell immediately in his eyes, wait a minute, that's my brother. Yeah, goes out and she sort of 
he sort of falls into her arms and everything and takes the balaclava off and and he doesn't really say that much except you know they did it basically basically telling her that they're the ones who you know all the people he's killed are the ones who you know were involved in robin's death um i thought you know sort of quite a good ending really i mean we get to see that this character is quite fragile is quite human probably in a way feels sorry for the things he's done but felt that he he had to do it you know there's a real feeling of emotion there and he dies in her arms and he's sort of left there crying and um i thought it was a good ending to be fair you know i think that last half hour i'm pretty much fine with to be honest you know the film is called prom night and the action takes place it's very uh, woven into the prom night so it in that respect, it's good. I just, it's just unfortunate that that first hour was such, you know, a bit of a drag. We had the, yeah. you know, these red herrings, this this subplot about the the child molester or the child killer or whatever who actually got convicted for the the child's death, but he didn't do it, and he's escaped. So there's these detectives on his case, these these very bland detectives yeah. who you don't care about, you know. It's not like Loomis, you know, if they'd have got someone with a bit of gravity to him, uh, you know, if if that subplot was needed at all, I'm not convinced that it was. Um, you know, there were no Sam Loomis, you know, who was great to watch. So it, it's just quite unfortunate, really, that that first hour was, was a bit dull. Nothing really happened. Half The last half hour was, was quite enjoyable, but just let it down. Yeah, all the stuff with the escaped criminal, I think, is just fluff, really. And it's just there. Yeah. It's purely designed to be a red herring, you know. And the same thing with the school janitor. You know, it's just supposed to be, all oh, this guy's a creepy guy, and he keeps looking at us. Maybe that's the killer. And you kind of know, really. If you've seen enough slasher movies, you know that that's not going to be the guy, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, this is the problem, really, Tom. It take, Like I said, it takes an hour and two minutes before there's a single kill. Like you look at Friday the 13th, for example, you know, things get moving. I mean, there's a... You know, there's a double murder right at the very beginning of the movie and there are kills sort of interspersed throughout it. And I think that's what I like about a slasher movie where you see things happening. You know, so there's a there's more impact because it's building up, whereas this is just all character, 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 building up to prom night. There's a mysterious caller. We don't really know who that is. It's all building up to the last 25 minutes, I suppose. That's it. That's the fatal flaw, I think, because that 25 minutes, I think, you sort of condense that down. You've got 25 minutes of a you know, a decent slash, and nothing really that stands out about it, but some you know some decent stuff there. But it is a bit of a slog, I have to say. I mean, this is the like I say, I, I watched it, and this time I was like, why on earth have I watched this so many times? Because it's just not, you know, it's not that great, really. Not bad. But just a bit like, oh, you, you really needed, it needed more punch to it, really. You know, get us involved a bit quicker. Get, intersperse a few kills in there early on to really sort of, you know, rev it up a bit. That's right. And I think when we ask ourselves that question, does it deserve its place on the mid-tier? You know, it's not up there with the Friday the 13th or Halloween, but it's not down there with your um, home sweet homes. I can see why it is on that mid-tier because it, it's a well-made movie, yeah. you know. I've no complaints there. Not much in the way of suspense as such, but you know, production-wise, it's good. Yeah, no characters to really, really latch onto that much. Jamie Lee is is enjoyable because she's Jamie Lee, but it's not a great character. Yeah. So yeah, I can see why it's sort of on that mid-tier. You know, it definitely doesn't deserve to be at the bottom, but doesn't deserve to be at the top either. No, there's just a little bit of polish to the filmmaking where you think, okay, this is these are people who sort of know what they're doing. 
yeah. unlike the previous two films where it's just a bit of a wreck really even though i you know i thought honeymoon horror had a few little elements in there where you think okay this kind of has a, a bit of potential this one i think does it, it works in that last sort of 25 minutes and you can understand why it was a success um which it was you know in the in the box office but it I mean, certainly, in terms of the character that Jamie Lee Curtis is playing, Kim, I mean, it pales in comparison to, to what she did as Laurie Strode. And, of course, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm saying anything particularly surprising to say that Halloween is a much better movie. It's, uh, it, you know, there's a lot more tension to it. And there's, I mean, I could go on forever about Halloween. It's my favourite movie. But, uh, yeah, yeah. There, there's, there is something to Prom Night, I think. But it is, yeah. Like I say, it's, it's a bit of a slog. But I think it's fair to say, like you say, it belongs on that mid-tier. You know, it's not a bad movie at all. It just doesn't really take advantage of of the potential it has. Agreed. Okay, Tom, well, let me read you some trivia. Of course, I know this is your favourite part of every episode. Hello. <laughs> According to IMDb, Paramount Pictures, evil Paramount Pictures, Tom, uh, had originally shown interest in releasing Prom Night, though insisted in it only being released in 300 theatres. Now, Avco Embassy Pictures made a counter-offer to release it in 1,200 theatres, and that offer was accepted. Uh, Paramount would subsequently release Friday the 13th just a few months later, which went on to great success. Uh, although not a successful, Prom Night still grossed 16 million at the box office and became a drive-in favourite. Prom Night was Jamie Lee Curtis's second slasher, following 1978's classic Halloween, directed by John Carpenter. Director Paul Lynch was only able to secure the funding he needed to make the film by casting Curtis. Uh, she would go on to star in one more film in the slasher subgenre. Tom mentioned it earlier on, 1980's Terror Train. Curtis was something of a screen queen in her early career, starring in those aforementioned films, as well as Carpenter's The Fog and Halloween 2, which are two favourites of mine. Oh, I love The Fog. Yeah, yeah, no, really, really good. Um, such great atmosphere in that movie. Great music yeah. as well. Um, she would then make a conscious decision to leave horror behind and in doing so achieve much mainstream success in the years that followed. You know, Fish Called Wanda and uh, I'm totally blanking on the bloody name of the James Cameron movie. True Lies. True Lies. Yeah, where she does possibly the sexiest striptease I've ever seen. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's good. <laughs> you pervy boy. Um, <laughs> she returned to horror with 1998's Halloween H2O, a film billed as a direct sequel to Halloween 2. And then had a character, Laurie Strode, uh, killed off in Halloween Resurrection, the film that followed it. Piece of crap. Uh, Pertis, uh, Pertis, <laughs> Curtis has recently returned to the horror genre, starring in the Ryan Murphy co-created TV series Scream Queens, which began airing this year. Ryan Murphy, of course, is the uh, creator of Glee and American Horror Story, I believe. So, uh, oh. yep, so she's starring in that. Uh, Leslie Nielsen appears in Prom Night as Principal Hammond in an entirely straight role. And we mentioned this. Nielsen had actually begun his career in the 50s and was considered something of a pinup icon throughout much of his career, thanks largely to his appearance in the classic Forbidden Planet in 1956. It wasn't until the comedy film Airplane released in um, 1980, the same year as Prom Night, that he would come to be known for comedy. He would go on to star in 1982's Police Squad TV series and subsequently became much more of a comedic actor with the show generating the hugely popular and successful spin-off Naked Gun movies, which I do love. Uh, yeah, big yeah. fan of those. Uh, much of the rest of his career was then filled with manic comedic roles, uh, which became what he was known for. Uh, he also appeared in, as far as horror roles go, he appeared in 1982's classic creep show in the segment Something to Tide You Over, which is one of my favourite segments in that film. Probably mine too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it, really? It's hard to imagine Leslie Nielsen ever being taken seriously. Like, <laughs> you know, he just seems like such, a, such an oddball, you know mad manic actor but uh yeah uh prom night was followed by three sequels now here's where we're going to get into details on that uh turning it into a franchise of sorts the sequels are entitled hello mary lou prom night 2 
Prom Night 3, The Last Kiss, and Prom Night 4, Deliver Us From Evil. None of the sequels are connected to the first in terms of story or characters, but there are some small connections. The Hamilton High School is where the story in each film takes place, though the events of the sequels are removed from the ones in the first film. It seems like in the sequels, whatever happened in the first film did, you know, it didn't happen in, in that particular timeline. Um, the line, it's not who you come with, it's who you go home with, is featured in all the films. Um, additionally, uh, actor Brock Simpson, who plays the young version of Nick in the opening scene, is the only uh, actor to appear in all four films in the series, each time playing a different character. So now, Tom, we can kind of sort of briefly talk about the sequels. Now, I would imagine you probably didn't get time to, to watch these, and I didn't get time to re-watch them either. No, no, I didn't. Okay, now, I sort of have to go from memory on this, because it's been a long time since I've seen them. Like I said, I just yeah. didn't have time with family over to uh, to sit down and go through them now. Um, I've written down some, some information about each one and then I'll sort of talk about my own memories of them. Problem Night 2 explores a more supernatural angle, undoubtedly influenced by Nightmare on Elm Street. It begins in the 50s and introduces the character of Mary Lou, played by Lisa Schrage, a prom queen who is accidentally burned to death in a, an, a horrific, ha 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 horrific school prank gone wrong. Uh, she returns 30 years later to exact her revenge on the students at the school. Now the film has more of a fun feeling to it, abandoning the more serious tone of the first. I guess we didn't say, but the tone of the first film's quite dark, isn't it really? Whereas the sequels really, particularly two and three, have you know more of a fun sort of uh, feel to them. Uh, Problem Night 3 ventures further into comedy, becoming largely a parody of the horror genre and the previous film. Uh, Mary Lou returns and is played by a different actress in that one, Courtney Taylor. And let me just talk about these two. Again, it's been a long time since I've seen them. I remember liking Prom Night 2. You can tell that, you know, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street came out in, what, 84? You can tell that right. it had some influence on this. The idea of a of a, a killer who is, you know, presumably burned to death and then comes back as a... She doesn't come back, you know, looking burned from what I remember, but she just comes back as a ghost, as a vengeful right. ghost. And it's, it's yeah, it's quite fun. The third one, I think, is where it really... Yeah, it goes into the land of parody, where it's sort of parodying slasher movies and, and sort of supernatural horror movies and things like that. And I, I don't remember that much about it. I, I don't think it's that good. Um, but I certainly remember the second one, I think, of, of all these sequels being the one to maybe check out. But, you know, okay. you just have to remember that they're not, you know, apart from the name of the school and that one line, they're otherwise not connected to anything that happened in the, in the first film. Uh, Problem Night 4 ventures, uh, or sorry, returns to a more serious tone, this time uh, exploring the story of a deranged priest named Father Jonas who is stalking victims at a summer home attended by students from Hamilton High School. Mary Lou doesn't feature in this film, uh, nor is the story seemingly connected to her other than the fact that she was uh, had originated from the same school. Um, I remember a bit about this. It's more of a sort of generic slasher. Right. Uh, nothing particularly good about it. Uh, oh, sorry, but particularly great about it. I remember it being okay. Uh, but I would definitely say Prom Night 2 is the one, I, you know, if you're going to sit down and watch a sequel to this, even though it's removed from the story of the first, like maybe Prom Night 2, give that a go. I think, Tom, you might sort of... You might enjoy that from what I remember of it. What a strange series this is, yeah. you know. I mean, the first one, it's quite grounded, isn't it? There's absolutely nothing supernatural about it, you know, and it's a sort of revenge film, quite tragic in its way and stuff like that. And, you know, there was no scope for a sequel, really, and, and it's just fascinating to me the way they... they the ways they find to carry things on. Yeah, basically cashing in on the popularity of that name, you know. I mean, we yeah. talked about Extro, didn't we, and the sequels having nothing to do with the events of the first film whatsoever. 
Um, so yeah, it's sort yeah. of a similar thing to that. Uh, finally, there was a remake of the original Prom Night that was released in 2008, uh, which, if I remember, had quite a big wide release in cinemas. Uh, the remake has many differences from the original and was pitched mostly to a teenage audience, thus abandoning gore and violence for a PG-13 rating. It wasn't well received. Um, I, what I remember of it is it is dry as a bone in terms of <laughs> violence, and it just really is very generic just basically just cashing in on the popularity of an old slasher really and not being very good at all so uh, avoid it <laughs> um so finally uh, problem light was released as a special edition blu-ray in 2014 by synapse films synapse films always do a great job i think um they really remaster things very very well and i believe synapse uh, don may jr i think is the guy who works at synapse who, who is somebody who seems to who, an archivist who seems to love remastering things properly and really pours over every frame and, and synapse at the moment and and indeed the, this gentleman uh, are working on, on a very special edition of suspiria really? and it's and it's supposed to be bumper packs and Based on his remastering jobs, which are considered some of the best in the business, I think that's going to be the one to get. Ah, uh, that's unfortunate because it'll be region A, won't it? It will get a multi-region player, Tom. Come round me house. Uh. We'll watch it together. <laughs> um, uh, no, I'm, I'm glad I picked up that region player. It cost me, you know, eighty-nine quid, so it wasn't, you know, the cheapest, but it wasn't that expensive, and um, it's been serving me very well. Uh, yeah, so Problem Night was released as a special edition Blu-ray. I've already said that. Why am I reading it again, Tom? Uh, this know. release, of course, uh, the one from Synapse Films, is locked to Region A, meaning you'll need a multi-region Blu-ray player to watch it if you live outside of the US. Uh, in the UK, the film is available on DVD as part of the Prom Night Complete box set, which is the one I think Tom and I both own, um, which also includes the uh, three sequels, not the remake, because I think the box set was released way before the remake was even a thing. Uh, but yeah, you can get that. Don't seem to be able to find it available just individually on its own in the UK. Uh, but hey, if you've got a region A, uh, sorry, if you've got a multi-region player, then maybe the uh, the Blu-ray is the one to get. So that was Prom Night, Tom. Uh, disappointing to some degree, but um, there's a bit of merit there in the last 25 minutes, I'd say. That's right. So let's see if there's any merit in this one. I'm going to tell you about The Prowler, Chris. Please do. I love to hear your voice. It makes me feel... Carry on. Okay, The Prowler, also known as Rosemary's Killer or Pitchfork erect, Massacre. Erect, is what I was trying to say. Released in 1981, directed by Joseph Zito and written by Glenn Leopold and Neil Barbera. Hard as a fucking rock. Women waiting for their lovers who serve in the army have to deal with long absences. For Rosemary Chatham, it seems absence does not make the heart grow fonder, as at the beginning of the film, she writes a letter to her boyfriend, currently serving in the army during World War II in 1945, and states very clearly that she no longer wishes to wait for him, and has decided to move on. She attends the graduation dance with her new boyfriend, and they eventually take off together, heading out to somewhere more private to make out. However, a mysterious killer dressed in a combat uniform and armed with a knife and a pitchfork arrives and promptly murders the two, shoving the pitchfork through their bodies and leaving a rose in Rosemary's hand. 35 years pass, taking us to 1980. Despite the local mayor Chatham, father of Rosemary, and played by veteran actor Lawrence Tierney, insisting that the graduation dance must never happen again following the death of his daughter, Local college student Pam McDonald, played by Vicky Dawson, has decided to revive the dance. Also on the scene is her love interest Mark, the deputy sheriff in the town. 
He's been left in charge while the Sheriff George travels out of town on a fishing trip. There's some talk of a killer heading towards the town, but the Sheriff insists that Mark can handle anything that comes his way. And so preparations begin for tonight's dance, with the students being unaware of a mysterious figure, again dressed in a combat uniform, making preparations of his own. Armed with a sharp knife, a pitchfork and a shotgun, this deadly figure begins stalking the local dorms. Two budding young lovers and future dance attendees meet a grisly end early on, the man being stabbed through the head and the girl being impaled on a pitchfork. It's not long before Pam, who returns to the dorm to put on a new dress, comes face to face with the silent stalker, and so begins a deadly game of cat and mouse as the killer stalks the grounds, killing whoever gets in his way. Pam and Mark team up as the killer works his way through the students, leading up to a vicious final battle. Just who is this mysterious person, and why has he returned on the eve of a new graduation dance? Could it be the same person who killed Rosemary and their love all those years ago? Or is it a copycat killer? Pam will find out in a tense final chase, as the killer does everything in his or her power to claim his final victim. Well, Captain, if your men are after him, I don't think there's anything to worry about. Yeah, my deputy will uh, let you know if he sees anything. Mark! Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's a good boy. You're damn right it's my fishing trip. And if you bother me about anything, Bill, I'll kick your ass right across the state line, okay? <laughs> okay. Goodbye. Now, if you need anything, you got my number. The worst you'll probably have will be some of those kids from the dance running wild. Now just remember, there's still some people around here who uh, won't put up with that kind of thing. Yes, sir. <laughs> you'll do fine. Come on down to Kingsley's with me. I've got some things i got to pick up. All right, so Rosemary's Killer, a.k.a. The Prowler. What do you think of this one, Chris? I like this one quite a bit. Uh, seen it a bunch of times now. It's so close, Tom. It's so close to being up there with Friday the 13th. It just makes some mistakes along the way, which is unfortunate, and we're going to get into it. And I wonder if you agree. I think we've discussed this film before, and I'm pretty sure you do agree with me on this. It just has some real issues with pacing and some problems with some scenes that feel extraneous i would say but there's the meat of a really good slasher in there and of course we're going to talk about them in detail but you've got makeup effects work done by tom savini tom savini probably is peak i would say mm. uh, yeah. and it, and i love that aspect of it i think it's got some great kills in it it's got some great violence in it. I think across the board, it's very well made. I think it's quite well acted. You know, the the two leads in here, uh, Pam and Mark, played by Vicky Dawson, and I didn't put his name in. I think his name is Christopher Groutman. Uh, I think are quite capable, really, and I think have good presence in the movie. I think, uh, you know, Pam, uh, Vicky Dawson, I think is is, you know, quite uh, competent and is a smart, you know, horror. Um, you know, slash a final girl, if you want to call her that. Uh, interesting killer, I think. I love the the get up, the combat uniform, and all the rest of it, and the sort of the way that he dispatches his victims. But it does have the issue of some really good stuff happening in the beginning, and then there's a lot of 
Mark walking around looking at stuff <laughs> and it, um and it it sort of it sags a lot in different places but I think if they tighten this one up I think it, it I think it would have been perhaps up there with Friday the 13th certainly but it just it misses the mark a little but I've always had had a fondness for this one I bought this a few years ago when Blue Underground brought it out on Blu-ray I watched it and didn't think much of it to be honest and mm-hmm. It's funny how time can change your perception of things, and I think the way we do this show as well, putting it up against another film, you can't help but compare the two either, can you? So this time round, I I really enjoyed it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. While I can see what you're saying with pacing issues when you put it next to Graduation Day, it's I see it starting to do things right, you know. It starts those kills pretty well very early on, and then there's a couple in the first half of the film and so on. So it is peppering them throughout. But you're right, it it does sag a bit in places as well. But you know, great kills. Yeah. Really good kills. Interesting killer. Maybe not the same gravitas as a Jason or a Michael. But to be fair, he only had the one film, didn't he? So you know, he he really hasn't grown in our minds like they have. But you're right, there's just something missing, some some spark. I don't know, I can't quite put my finger on, on what it is. I, for me personally, I think it might be the characters. You know, say what you want about Friday the 13th, whether it was by accident or, or what. There, there's normally a couple of the kids in each movie that I, I really sort of grab onto. And while these were very capable... I don't know, I just didn't really feel that much for them or really get that much sense of location. There is to a degree, but but I'm I'm just trying to formulate in my mind what it is exactly that's missing because the characters aren't any worse than, than a lot of other films, so I don't know whether it really is that. I don't know, but... There is something missing that that stops it being on that upper tier, and I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is. I agree with you. I think it. There are moments where it really springs to life, and then I think it sags. I mean, you know, I'm not sort of alone in thinking that. It seems like the general criticism is that it. it some people find it a bit boring when there's not, mm. you know, when the killer isn't around. Really, there is a lot of Mark, the the deputy sheriff, sort of walking around looking for the killer, and there's a lot of that. And in fact, if you listen to the commentary track on on the Prowler Blu-ray, I guess it must be on the DVD as well, but uh, it's got Savini and uh, the director Joseph Zito discussing the film, and there are several points where they actually kind of stop and watch the film, and Joseph Zito says, man, if I could have another crack at this movie again, I would have cut this down big time, you know, he's pretty much saying, you know, um, some of these scenes just go on too long. Oh, good for him. Yeah, so it seems like, you know, even he and even and Savini were saying the same thing, really, is that, you know, this is sort of it's so close, but it just is. There are bits that are, they're a bit too long. But we've got to discuss really the the stars of the show are the kills, aren't they, Tom? I mean, this is Savini at his best. There are several examples of of just a great effect here. But my favorite, one of my favorite horror kills in general, is the the poor unfortunate sod who comes in, getting ready to get in the shower with his girlfriend, and the killer comes up behind behind him. I think quite an imposing figure. The killer um, never yeah. speaks, and. Uh, shoves a knife through the top of his head which juts out of his chin at the bottom and then sort of holds it there and the guy is struggling it's one of the most painful looking 
kills I've seen because you can imagine not only how much how painful that would be. I mean, his eyes start rolling towards the back of his head. You know, his eyes turn white. Um, yeah, what a great effect that is, Tom. It is. I mean, the kill in itself, it, it's good. You know, I sat up and took notice. Oh, hello, look at this, and it's good. And then he opens his eyes, and they're completely white. Mm. And it's just that extra little detail that sends it over the edge. Really good kill. Yeah, really one. I think one of Savini's best. And then you know, uh, I think probably less than a minute after that, we get really another kill. And it, you know, so really at this point, the the you know things are, are moving. There's momentum. Uh, the killer comes into the the shower area and opens up the uh, slides the shower door open and then stabs the woman in the stomach with the pitchfork. And again, another you know, not quite as not quite as grisly as the other kill, but um, very effective. You know, it looks reasonably realistic. I think it does. I guess this is his um, his weapon of choice, isn't it? He's got two. He's got the pitchfork and the bayonet mm-hmm. that he takes out of his boot. He's got a, a shotgun uh, as well. Oh, he's got a shotgun too. Yeah, but um, you know, every slasher's got to have his sort of weapon of choice. And the pitchfork is pretty much his signature weapon. I guess every slasher has one. Yeah. He uses it at the beginning of the film. He uses it uh, in this shower scene as well. But very brutal kills. Mm-hmm. There's one in a swimming pool as well where the, the girl is swimming and she goes to get out the pool and he just kicks her in the head yeah. and she falls back into the pool. And it's it's funny because in a lot of these slashes, it's usually just like, okay, throw cuts, you know, a knife in the head or something, which of course are vicious, but you rarely see a, a, the brutality of a of a beaten, do you? You know what I mean? And she's getting out of the pool, and he kicks her in the head, and he gets into the pool. And was that a throat cut? That it was, one? yeah, and and quite yeah. sort of graphic, really. I mean, he really, you know, they show the sort of the penetration of the knife cutting through the throat. I get the impression in this one that Savini wanted to make all the kills in this look really painful. Well, it's it, it really is a, a kind of tour de force of, of kills. I think when you stack this against, I don't mind saying, you stack this against a lot of the Friday the 13th movies, yeah. I'd say the kills are better in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them, once the MPAA started getting involved, they couldn't really show very much on-screen you know, graphic violence anyway. And this is... Yeah, I think this is uh, certainly up there. Some of the best kills you're going to see in a slasher movie, certainly of, of that of this particular period. So let's talk about the you know sort of the quality of the filmmaking here, Tom. You know, as we mentioned, mid tier slasher, like Prom Night. I think this is very well made. I mean, you could compare this to Friday the Thirteenth. I think very favor- favorably. Uh, the production values, I think, are, 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 are you know pretty up there. There aren't a ton of locations. Um, they're mostly sort of running around the same sort of area, but more locations than a, a Friday the Thirteenth film would normally have. Um, obviously, I think they had a lot of money, particularly. I think they had about a million dollars to play with. Uh, but I, I, I think the production values. I think Joseph Zito. You know, we're going to talk a bit more about him. Is a name that people will know. I think he's a very competent director. I do too. I think there's a decent bit of suspense in this as well mm. which is something that uh, Prom Night didn't really have for me anyway and you're right it, it looks very nice that that period bit at the start was well done as well you know they had that uh, the the band leader guy you know all these nice little details and everything it, it does it it's a good looking movie yeah, it really is I you know when I go back to it I always think yeah this is sort of put together very well um, if only some of the flaws weren't there, I think it would really. I do think it w- it would compare quite favourably to Friday the Thirteenth. Maybe not Halloween because I think Halloween has an elegance to it in the filmmaking, and uh, yeah. you know that 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 this is mis- even Friday the Thirteenth is missing that. To be honest with you, that's John Carpenter. Who I think is 
you know, is, is a, is a, for me is an auteur. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's got some, it's got some really cool stuff in it. I mean, let's talk about the, 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 the MO of the killer. So at the beginning of the movie, of course, we see somebody dressed in, in exactly the same uniform. Uh, we see him kill Rosemary. That's where the title came from. I like the I like the title The Prowler better because yeah. Rosemary's killer. I mean, Rosemary's only in the opening scene, you know, and so I think that it makes more sense. The other title is Pitchfork Massacre, um, which I suppose makes more sense because that is his weapon of choice, as you say. Uh, now, I mean, I asked you this for, for, for Prom Night as well, so I'm going to ask you again. Did you have... When you first watched the movie, obviously you've just seen it again, did, did you suspect the killer quite quickly? Do you think it was well done, well hidden? I can't remember uh, the last time I watched it, so I, I didn't recall it this time. And I didn't guess it, no. I didn't really have an inkling. When it was revealed, I, I was a bit like, oh, I don't really care. Yeah. To be, And I think that's one of the flaws of the thing. Mm. When When I did actually find out, it was like, so what you know and that's unfortunate because there there is such such good stuff in it but it just felt like a bit of a letdown really i don't think that particular aspect was done well um i guess we can reveal now that the killer is actually the sheriff uh sheriff george who you know of course when you watch the film again you're like oh going on a mysterious fishing trip are you Hmm." (laughs) Uh, of course he's a and and we're meant to. They don't really. Now this is a, another thing I wanted to talk about. I feel like they they leave some questions kind of up in the air, really, and they sort of you have to kind of put it together yourself, really, because it's never it, it's never explicitly um, told to you that that George was the you know the boyfriend or whatever of Rosemary originally, and that he's the one who killed her when he was a young guy coming back from the army. Um, yeah. It's never sort of explicitly revealed. I mean, obviously that must be the case. You've got the Lawrence Turney character who plays the mayor, who is supposed to be suspicious as well, um, which to me is another flaw because it's just a really hollow role, and he's in a wheelchair through the whole through the whole movie. I say through the whole movie, he only really has about two scenes. There's one where he grabs at Pam's dress when she's running away from the killer, and then disappears from the movie completely, and we never know what happens yeah. to him. You know. Uh, I think he might have been the one who was spying on the two kids, um, you know, having sex down in that sort of basement area. But I think that's about it, really. It has, has nothing to do. So we're meant to sort of, we're, we're meant to believe that this, for whatever reason, this sheriff was in love with this woman and killed her. And for some reason, he's deciding to kill people on the graduation dance again, maybe because he's a bit annoyed by it, that it's happening. Uh, we don't really know. Not Not really, you don't really get the answers to your questions. I, I guess that they're having this dance for the first time in years, and it's sort of triggered something within him, I suppose. But it it just, you know, he's had his revenge already. It uh, he's gotten away with it, and it just seemed a bit hollow, you know. And, and like I said, when it was revealed, I was kind of like, well, so what? Yeah. You know, and it, it kind of tarnished it a bit. Yeah, I mean, he never actually, you know, it's not like a Murder, She Wrote episode where he then just sits there and explains why he did it. You know, it just is, you know, you see him and he's grappling with Pam. But we do get another glorious Savini effect here where we see uh, Pam uh, manages to blow the guy's head off. And um, Tom Savini, the king of head explosions. He is. I, I don't think it tops Maniac still, no. but it's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, it's it's a good one. They don't linger on it for too long. 
that's the thing which maybe if they had you would be able to see you know the sort of more of the the fakery that was involved in it the magic trick behind it but they it's a quick flash but it is it's it's a nice brutal head explosion and the uh, the old killer is dead. Interesting you know, moments that happen in this. I mean, the character of Mark, who's a deputy sheriff, is the only character that he doesn't kill, doesn't attempt to kill. I, I would guess because he liked him. You know, he used to work, he worked under him, obviously. And so um, he yeah. just knocks Mark out. He doesn't actually kill him. Uh, I thought that, you know, the character of Pam, like you say, that they're not, you know, there's nothing particularly great about the characters. I think those actors are capable. I mean, I think they did something interesting with Pam, which is normally you'll have that thing where they, you know, the, the girl will see the killer and then start asking questions. Who are you? What are you doing? You know, why are you looking at me? She, the yeah. moment she sees him, she takes off running, which is, you know, probably what the, what the rest of us would do as well. So I thought there was, a, there was a little bit of intelligence to that role. Beautiful girl as well, I think. Like really a, um, you know, a gorgeous looking girl. And I think fits quite well. And, um, there's a piece of feedback which we're going to play for you later on where somebody, and we'll get to that, um, compares her to Ginny from Friday the 13th Part 2. And I think that's a that's a pretty good comparison, actually. But Ginny, I think, had a, was a lot more spirited that's than right. Pam. I think it was a better, you know, sort of deeper character. Yeah, I think that's that's the key here. You know, she, she is very capable. Both of them are. Uh, but Ginny had a spark about her, like you say, a spirit that I just wasn't really feeling with these two. Mm-hmm. And again, which made the whole thing feel just that little bit empty. Yeah, maybe that's the best way of saying it. There are just there there are moments in this where it does feel a bit empty, and it feels like they're mm. sort of padding it out with extraneous stuff that doesn't need to be there. At the ending of the movie, it takes a sort of cue from Carrie. We get uh, Pam going up to the dorm, and she walks into the bathroom, and she sees the body of the the if I remember rightly, the first two kills in the movie, aside from uh, Rosemary at the very beginning and her lover. The, uh, the first two students who died there rather horrifically, they're in the shower. And there's a moment where this guy who is dead, it's meant to be, you know, it's meant to be a sort of carry moment where she's imagining that this happened, um, reaches yeah. out for her and she starts screaming and looking in disbelief. And it was meant to basically be, you know, her realising that she's going to be haunted by this for the rest of her life, you know, that she'll probably never be able to look over her shoulder again without feeling fearful. Um, I thought, you know, it was a decent ending shot. And, um, yeah, I... I I like this one, Tom. You know, I, I I do like this. I I I just wish that it was tightened up in a lot of different areas. And it seems like you know the director Joseph Zito felt the same way. It just was tightened up here and there. Just reduce a few bits here and there. You know, tighten it up. But I really think it could have. You know, it would be in competition with a film like Friday the Thirteenth. You know, I did enjoy it, and I might even watch this one again. Like you say, just those little bits here and there made it feel a bit empty killer who I didn't really care for on the reveal just some unfortunate missteps but Joseph Zito I can see why he went on to direct which could possibly be my favourite Friday the 13th Mm. when he had uh, an iconic killer to work with and you know a bit more going on He, he could really sort of deliver. Yeah one of those very sort of competent directors who was never ever going to be one of the big guys but no. was you know very capable, and uh, I think he did a good job here. The violence, though, is really the star of the movie. I mean, if you want to see just great practical effects from somebody who was the master at that particular time, I think this this sort of has it for you. You know, it is in some ways I think superior to to Friday the Thirteenth, certainly in that aspect. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it loses a bit in terms of pacing and and things like that, and doesn't really have a great reveal at the end of it. But it it is. Uh, 
I think it's strong in, in, in several areas, really, Tom. It's, uh, you know, I walk away from it thinking, yeah, there's some really memorable... I always remember that scene of the knife going into the head, you know, it just is, is always kind of stuck with me. And I think that's a sign of certainly a, a great effect when you can, uh, you know, you can remember that quite vividly. And again, is it worthy of that mid-level status? Yeah, because of those unfortunate missteps that really just stop it from getting to the top. But, you know... It's, I think it's a bit closer than uh, Prom Night was. Yeah, see, I think it's a lot closer. I think it's almost... Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's almost there, you know, it just is. Yeah, it sort of gets shunted back down into the mid-tier. But it, certainly this is worth watching. Just be aware, I mean, it's only 90 minutes long. It's not like it's a long film, but it feels long at times. And yeah. I think that's that's an issue. It's just a pacing issue, really. But I think it's, it's fair to say we both, uh, you know, we both like this one. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so Tom, it's time for me to read you the trivia once again, your favourite part of the show. Uh, director Joseph Zito was given the director's chair on, as Tom mentioned, Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter, uh, based on this film. Now they saw this and thought, yeah, this would be the guy, and they were. I think they were right to do that. Uh, Zito made his name as a director of low-budget films beginning in the 70s. He had the most success in the 80s with this film, uh, Friday Part 4, and also his venture into cheesy 80s action flicks. He directed two Chuck Norris-led action films, the cult classics Missing in Action and Invasion USA, released in 84 and 85, respectively. He also directed Red Scorpion in 1988, starring Dolph Lundgren. So you mentioned there Friday Part 4, possibly your favourite. Yeah, you know, there's always going to be some discussion with that one, but it's definitely up there, definitely up there. Yeah, I would say of the sort of... Because we always... The fan base always tends to sort of divide the films and cut them in half from part six, which is zombie Jason. Before yeah. that, we have sort of, you know, regular Jason, as it were. Uh, I think that part four is probably the best of the regular Jason movies, if you want to call them that. Um, uh-huh. yeah, really good, really pacey, really well done. Uh, yeah. So I uh, would have to agree with that. Uh, legendary makeup effects artist Tom Savini, of course, did all the gore scenes here. Due to their elaborate nature, many of the scenes were actually set up and based entirely around Savini's effect. Uh, according to IMDb, Savini still considers this film to feature his best effects work. Savini created a fake headpiece based on Farley Granger's face. That's the uh, the, the guy who's a veteran actor, actually, who played uh, the killer here. And then fired a real shotgun into the fake head resulting in the brilliant explosion of gore and flying pieces that we see in the resulting shot. Uh, Avco Embassy, who we remember as the same distributors who released Prom Night, made an offer of $750,000 to distribute the, um, the Prowler. However, the producer on the picture declined the offer and made the decision to self-distribute it, or distribute, rather. Uh, director Zito has always claimed that this movie, uh, this move ultimately hurt the box office success of the movie which you can understand, perhaps it would have had a wider release um, if not for that. Uh, despite being generally praised for their roles in The Prowler, actors Vicky Dawson and Christopher Geltman did not go on to much more success as actors. They did have further acting roles, but both had stopped acting by the late 80s. Uh, Geltman did continue to have a career as a producer and director, I've written product there, uh, as a producer and director of American TV soaps, uh, such as As the World Turns and Days of Our Lives. And finally, veteran actor Lawrence Cherney, of course, we mentioned him before, is someone we covered in a previous episode, having starred in John Russo's Midnight as the sexually abusive stepfather of the main character. Uh, Tierney, and we've covered him pretty extensively on, on that episode, uh, is perhaps best known to modern audiences for his scene in Reservoir Dogs, but had many starring roles in projects throughout a long and distinguished career. Nevertheless, his role in The Prowler is very small, not particularly well fleshed out. A bit of a waste, really. It is. It's, uh, it's bizarre that they got, you know, he's not the biggest name in the world obviously, but he had a certain presence when he was speaking and 
his voice is is half of his kind of charm and persona and they just sort of have him sitting there looking a bit funny so it's a strange yeah. one and then disappears at some point so uh yeah strange yeah. Uh, the prowler is available to buy on dvd in the uk released by studio canal this version goes under the original title of rosemary's killer and claims to be uncut on the outside cover uh, perhaps the most popular release is uh, this is the one i've got is the the one from blue underground on blu-ray this release is region free like all of blu-ray uh, all of blue underground's blu-ray releases and it comes with a feature on savini's gore effects for the film plus a commentary track featuring savini and director zito which i recommend listening to because they're quite sort of candid about the flaws of the movie you know zito in particular really is you know there are a couple of scenes here where he's like ah you know i really should have you know, we really should have cut this down and, you know, not had so much waffling and walking about. Um, yeah, very, very interesting. I think it's a good film, Tom. I I like it. Flawed, but uh, I think it's a better film than Prom Night. Certainly, it's one that I find myself revisiting every couple of years. And I always I always see the flaws, but I always come away thinking, man, those those effects are good. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a decent, you know, good slasher that could have been great, I think. Yeah, it was a good stab at the genre. genre so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement on that one. Very nice, Tom. A good stab at the genre. Eh? Uh, mm. see. Okay, Tom, well, that's the end of the review portion of the show. I think it's time now for us to do some feedback. So, for our first piece of feedback, we have some audio from the man himself. He's always going to film festivals, I've noticed, and eating bacon and eggs. Stuff that's really unhealthy for him. But he's settled his ass down now. It's Gore Blimey. He sent in some audio, and uh, he's going to tell us what he thinks of The Prowler, I believe. Uh, didn't see, didn't have a chance to see Prom Night, and uh, according to him, had never seen the film before, so it was a bit of a shame. He didn't get to see that. Uh, let's let's hear from Mr. Gorblimey. Hi guys, Gorblimey here. That's Gorblimey, not Goreboy. On Twitter as at DoubleAgent73. Didn't get a chance to watch Prom Night, but I did revisit Rosemary's Killer, or The Prowler, for the first time since I saw it in a cut version on VHS back in the day. It came out in 81, so that was the peak of the golden era of slasher movies. In fact, the same year as classics like My Bloody Valentine, The Burning, Friday the 13th Part 2, Happy Birthday to Me, Halloween 2, and of course, Don't Go in the Woods, Alone. In those days, you'd often find me in the horror section of my local video library, like a kid in a sweet shop. Anyway, here are my notes about Rosemary's Killer. After the film's opening sequence, with a murder at a graduation dance in the 1940s, action moves to 1980, where the hairdos are bigger, the shorts are shorter, the dancing is terrible, and the cops walk around with their hands self-consciously fixed on their hips the whole time. It's the first graduation dance in 35 years, and they're celebrating the fact by hanging big clusters of pink balloons everywhere, like giant festive hemorrhoids. But the police have reported a potentially dangerous prowler hanging around outside, which is tactfully announced to the partygoers before telling them to carry on and just relax and enjoy the music. Its musical cues remind me a lot of Friday the 13th Part 2, and come to think of it, the final girl looks a lot like Ginny in that film. But obviously, this is a very different film to Friday the 13th Part 2. I mean, it has a double impalement death scene and all. And a final girl who hides under a bed while a rat walks past her face. 
It's not like they both include the same hugely iconic image of the final girl holding a pitchfork raised towards the killer or anything. Double penetration scene aside, the rest of the film follows the classic 80s slasher tropes. Seemingly unstoppable silent masked killer, horny teens, gratuitous boobs, people with an annoying habit of creeping up silently to each other and suddenly grabbing their shoulder to get their attention, final girl chase sequence, false ending, final jump scare, and a few bits of silliness thrown into the logic. Things like the deputy sheriff and final girl, who's strangely calm after being pursued by a scary masked man moments before, exploring a dark, creepy house using torches. And despite actually walking right past an illuminated standard lamp, don't even consider switching the lights on. Or the magic swimming pool. Not only does the person in the pool not notice the big dark shadow of a man underwater next to her, but someone else walks right past the edge of it without spotting the huge cloud of red blood in the water. Despite men with big hair and the odd elasticated boob tube, the camp factor is surprisingly low, and the body count is smaller than you'd think for a slasher of this period. It does have some pretty impressive gore effects though. Mind you, it should have, as they use makeup maestro Tom Savini. But what does mark this one out as different to a lot of the classics of the time is its pace. It's quite a slow burn. And when I say slow burn, I mean it drags and it's a bit boring. Which is surprising when you consider the director went on to direct Friday the 13th, the final chapter, which is seen by many as one of the strongest entries in that franchise. The acting performance are fairly good. It's well shot, with a few great sequences using shadows, which I thought were really effective. And, as I mentioned, the gore effects are amazingly well done. But while the very similar Friday the 13th Part 2 might take a while to get going, this film rarely seems to get out of first gear, which is a shame. It had good potential. Anyway, that's all from me. Keep up the good work, guys, and speak to you soon. All right, Gore, thank you very much, dear sir. Uh, yeah, talks about a number of classic films coming out in 1981, like uh, My Bloody Valentine and Don't Go in the Woods. I don't know I don't know if I consider Don't Go in the Woods a classic particularly, it's, um, but I haven't seen it for so long. Uh, My Bloody Valentine, I think, is a good comparison, though. Uh, it is quite similar to this, I think. It's another one of those films that I think, you know, it definitely has that mid-tier slasher status, but I think mm. is... Is comparable to to Friday the Thirteenth. It's it's half. I think I might prefer My Bloody Valentine. It's certainly the the more recent edition on Blu-ray, which has all the the. It's fully uncut. They managed to find all the gore footage that was cut out of the original version, and I think that version, even though the footage doesn't look that great compared to the rest of the movie, I think I I might prefer My Bloody Valentine. I mean, I mean, what's your take on it? You know, I've ne- I've only seen the remake of uh, My Bloody Valentine. I-, I never saw the original, but I love when people restore things like that and, you know, they find the lost bits and put it all back together. So I think I'll look that one up and give it a watch. Yeah, I mean, that was one of those films where Hysteria Lives, which is the, the big popular slasher website, had done articles talking about this mysterious this mysterious sort of uncut gore footage and it had become a bit of a legend really and a myth like people there were quite a lot of people who didn't believe that it even existed anymore and they managed to find it and they put it into the movie and um, and they also have it separate on the on the blu-ray so you can just watch those but it and i think it really like i say it looks different to the main film because obviously the the you know the materials they had to work with were, were not as good but it but I think if you can ever pick up that Blu-ray, which is region free, um, I think yeah. you'll have a you'll have a good time with that. Tom. It's a good, you know, it's a good 80s slasher, um, comparable to this in some way. But I think superior to it in not in terms of violence, I think, but certainly um, 
you know, in terms of the pacing and things like that. Um, anyway, going back to Gore Blimey, we went on a bit of a tangent there. Um, he could often be found in video shops, he said, during this period, perusing the shelves like a kid in a candy store. Ah, uh, those were the days. Absolutely. I remember renting the Friday the 13th movies. Like, I remember the first time I rented Friday the 13th Part 7, which was on a VHS tape, and just couldn't believe it, you know. I was amazed that I could even, you know, I could get a film like that on a videotape. You know, videotapes, VHS tapes. Do you still have a VHS tape collection tom you know what i don't i i dabbled in it recently because that's sort of getting a bit of a resurgence as well you know bringing things out on uh, vhs and like limited runs and stuff like that and whereas i like to sit down and listen to a record I, I, i'm not that in that you know i, I like that films look better now you know yeah, what i mean yeah, yeah. On, on blu-ray and dvd so i don't I, I like holding a videotape box in my hand, you know, with beautiful artwork and stuff like that. I think that's great, but I don't have a videotape playing anymore. And I did dabble a bit in it and then sort of thought, hold on a minute, Blu-rays look much better. So, you know, <laughs> didn't really go with it. What about you? No, no, I don't. I got rid of my my VHS tapes a long time ago. Unfortunately, I dumped quite a lot of them, which I really, really regret now. I wish I'd at least sold them so that another you know, another horror fan could have could have taken them from me and, you know, added added them to their to, to their collection. I mean the, the problem I have with VHS tapes, the idea of buying them now is that they're built it's got a built in degradation to it, you know, where it it is mm. if you keep watching it eventually the tape will degrade to where you can't play it anymore. And we don't have that issue with Blu rays and things like that. Um, but definitely I understand the appeal of it. You know, I'm all for retro collecting, you know, I mean I'm I watch a lot of videos um on YouTube about people who collect old retro video game consoles and games and things like that, you know, you know, I'm a big gamer. Uh And, um, I, although I couldn't do it because I don't have the space for it, I think it's a wonderful hobby, you know, to go to all these flea markets and things like that and find these old rare video game consoles and things. So the idea of retro collecting appeals to me, but it, but yeah, yeah, it's there. I'm exactly like you. Right? You know, stick on my Blu-ray and think, oh, that looks damn nice. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, he describes the pink balloons. I thought it was funny hanging around the graduation dance as festive hemorrhoids. Oh, he sounded a bit disappointed there, Tom. Like, how could he sink that low? No, it's more like ah, oh, festive hemorrhoids. Oh, <laughs> oh nice, what a happy image that is, Tom. Put a bit of tinsel mm. on it, <laughs> hanging out your bum hole. Uh, describes Pam as being similar to Ginny in looks. And uh, he pointed out that some of the similarities to Friday the 13th Part 2. And I thought that was interesting. You know, you've got the pitchfork murder, of course. Uh, I don't actually know whether The Prowler came out first or not. I mean, I know they came out the same year, but um, I have no idea. My feeling is that they came out the same year. They were probably in production at the same time. And it's a bit of a coincidence. But um, there are some similarities there, aren't there? There definitely is. There definitely is. Uh, But there was just so many at that time, wasn't there? And... They all seem to be singing from the same hymn sheet in a lot of ways, going from the same template. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of some similarities. Yeah, and he also mentions how good the gore effects are, which, of course, we agree. I'm sure most people would. Good camera work and good work with shadows. Uh, but he does say that it never really gets out of first gear. And I think I don't necessarily agree with that all the way through. I think there are moments where it really does rev up. But I do think there are a lot of moments where it where it also... You know, like he says, sinks back down into first gear again and it's a bit slow and, and lethargic and then wakes up again. Uh, but yeah, seems to sort of generally agree with us overall. Good. Always good to hear from you, go blimey and not go boy. Yep, thanks. God. He's really running with that now, isn't he? That uh, <laughs> I'm go blimey and not go boy. Just you remember, just you remember who's superior, young boy. 
I don't know why I'm talking like that. Uh, Tom, you've got some uh, an email to read for us. Yes, from our friend Amanda. This is the same Amanda that we were talking about on the last episode, who left us a message on Facebook, and uh, you know, but, but she actually sent an email in for the first time, which is which is pretty awesome. She did, and she says, "Hi guys, this is Amanda. I hope this feedback finds you well." She has a little smiley face. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wanted to start by saying that I'm sorry. I thought you guys had said you weren't into slashes. You don't have to be sorry. Oh no, you should be sorry, young woman. <laughs> it's fine. I'm not quite sure where I got that from. And maybe Tom was right that I heard it from Chris Brown's feedback. I remember Chris Brown. Yeah, I do remember. Whatever happened to that boy? I don't know. I don't know. Is he dead? I think he's still alive. Um, I think what happened was he probably listened back to uh, a couple of the shows where I, uh, <laughs> you know, had a bit of a had a bit of a knock on him in a in a fun way and thought, you know what, they can fuck right off. But we miss you, Chris. We do. We do. Uh, either way, I absolutely misspoke and sent along apologies. No, no apologies. Yeah, not at all. I am super excited to hear your thoughts on Prom Night. This is one film that seems to have either really passionate fans or those who are underwhelmed by it. It's slow, not very violent, but I've always thought it was a really dark film. The killer's reveal exposes a deep level of betrayal. Every one of Kim's close friends and boyfriend are responsible for killing Robin. Yet, but yet none of them ever show one ounce of regret, except for one moment with Nick. Yeah, she's absolutely right there, isn't she? Yeah, I and mean, I think there, there are sort of there are two moments really for Nick where he sort of you know there's one where he's in the house getting ready to pick Kim up and he sort of looks at the picture of Robin and you can tell that there's some regret there. I don't think it, I don't think it makes what he did any you know. I don't necessarily think that he should be forgiven for that, but I do think there's an ounce of, of, of regret there. But for the rest of them, no, they've all sort of grown up and have forgotten about it. I think it makes the killer really sympathetic, and I see the end as a metaphor for loss of innocence. I could go on about this and Wendy and her fabulous red dress, but I think that might bore you. No, no, you should, uh, Wendy. See, Wendy was played by that actress who... Uh, did you ever used to watch Sledgehammer? No. Are we talking about the Peter Gabriel song? <laughs> uh, no, no, it was it was an American comedy TV show. I think they only done one season, but it was sort of like a, a comedy version of Dirty Harry, and it was quite funny for the time. And she was in that. She was one of my first kind of crushes when I was, you know, young. Oh well, we know, we know about you. You're a dirty boy. I will say, Tom, that um, I forgot to put this in the trivia, but that that actress, I can't remember her name now, but she actually went on to marry Michael Crichton. Uh, he of Jurassic Park fame. Right, okay. All right. Sorry, sorry, Amanda, we're uh, going off on tangents here. But, um, all right, but I think that might bore you. No, I think we've bored you, Amanda. <laughs> I will say my college thesis paper was about prom night, and he knows you're alone, and I wrote an essay about prom night for a book called Butcher Knives and Body Counts. I'm kind of a fan. Oh, we'll have to look that well, one up. She's obviously more distinguished than we are, Tom. I know, We're yeah, hacked. a pair of fucking, yeah. What, are you going to say a pair of fucking, what, geezers? <laughs> Something along those lines. Um, I love The Prowler too. The death scenes are insanely amazing, especially the guy who gets a knife through the top of his head. I also like the overall feel of the movie, and it's a lot of fun. But I have less to say about this one. I did meet the director years ago. He's very nice. Look forward to revisiting it with you. Okay, that was long and probably reads horribly. I will stop there. I truly love listening to your show and I'm looking forward to hearing more about Section 3, which is something I'm slightly unfamiliar with. Take care, Amanda. Well, thank you, Amanda. I think um, 
I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with it. It, it, it was quite, quite undiscovered for a while. Yeah. You know, everyone talked about the video nasties, and I think it was Jake West and Mark Morris when they were doing their research for their documentary who who unearthed it. And uh, you know, so, hold on a minute, look at this list. I might be wrong on that, but I, I think it's the case. But but anyway, yeah, it's uh, it's good to hear from you. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that she sort of says that. I'm looking forward to hearing more about Section 3. It almost makes me wonder if maybe, you know, as we sort of head along here on our journey, maybe even before we finish, you know, covering all the films, we maybe do sort of a little recap of the Section 3 thing and kind of talk mm. about the history of that. But, yeah, it seems like with that documentary, it, uh, it kind of all kicked off from there, really. But thanks, Amanda. Thanks for talking to us. I will just say she does a website and I think a podcast called Made for TV Mayhem. And you want to talk about people who do, you know, there are a lot of podcasters who basically do the same thing over and over again, which is, you know, I mean, horror podcasts are a dime a dozen. Um, some people are able to sort of, you know, inject their own personality and their own feel to it. But she does something where she predominantly, well, I guess all the way through, covers made-for-TV movies, including made-for-TV horror movies. You know, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, for example, is one that I own. It's a bit of a classic, and that was a TV movie. It is actually quite sort of, you know, chilling for a, for a TV movie, and um, she, she covers those. And I think that's quite an original concept for a, for a podcast and a website, really, you know, covering these movies that appear on TV. We often think that a TV movie must be of a lesser quality than a, you know, sort of big cinematic release, or, but... um. You know, probably not actually there are probably some really good ones and she certainly seems to cover those so um, yeah you know, check that out made for TV mayhem good I uh, I will download that as soon as we've finished this no you won't right email from Andrew <laughs> Smith uh, <laughs> we've got an email from Andrew Smith here he says hi again guys I thought I would comment about the films from the last few episodes and this episode starting off with Invasion of the Blood Farmers oh Tom the old classic uh, I love yeah. the scientist guy who kept running out of the lab shouting wonderful news, sounding like Kenneth Williams and Carry On Screaming. <laughs> <laughs> there are also uh, great things like the cameraman going for tea breaks, uh, long static shots, uh, acting more wooden than the furniture, and even old Jim Carrey. Yeah, remember that? Old Jim Carrey. <laughs> old Jim Carrey, the first victim in the movie. Uh, Midnight had an annoying song that sticks in the head long after. Home Sweet Home had the killer who laughed like Sideshow Bob. The, uh, I still maintain uh, Spongebob, but uh, pretty close. The Maid, who sounded like a, f a female version of Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. And Mistake, <laughs> a bigger pain in the arse than Piles. That's two yes. references to hemorrhoids in on this episode, Tom. Oh. It's quite interesting, really. There's a through line there. Honeymoon Horror started like Bay of Blood and ended like The Burning, only shitter than both. Um, I just want to say there quickly, we, I, didn't, I forgot to bring that up, but... It, the Burning is a sort of similar film to Honeymoon Horror, but done much better. Um, if you've never seen that, it's got a great kill with a pair of shears. Uh, sorry, a great bunch of kills with a pair of shears on a boat. That's um, a really great standout scene. Um, I can't remember if Tom Savini had anything to do with The Burning. I think he might have, but I don't I, Don't quote me on that. I may be wrong. I think he did. I, yeah. I was thinking that as you were saying. Yeah, I think maybe he did do the effects on that. Uh, as far as this episode, Prom Night doesn't do much for me. Jamie Lee Curtis isn't really appealing and far more sympathetic in Halloween. On the other hand, The Prowler has a good killer, great murder uh, set pieces that all help get the director, Joseph Zito, the gig for Friday the 13th Part 4. These two slashes get uh, a bit more attention than a lot of others, but sadly, because of the Curtis factor, Prom Night gets more. 
Uh, before finishing, just to mention in case people weren't aware, DVD label Vinegar Syndrome, who uh, released that uh, version of uh, that special edition of Christmas Evil, which I have proudly on my shelf now, uh, have an on-demand streaming service called Exploitation TV, which has some really strange, obscure uh, features and short films that some may find interesting. Keep up the good work, Andrew Smith. Thank you, Andrew. Is that available in the UK? I wonder. I'm all about streaming these days. Mm. That's like 90% of me watching now. But uh, yeah. yeah, good stuff. Yeah, no, but I'd be interested. I don't know where he's from. He might be from America, and so it might be available there and not here. But I'll, I'll definitely look into it. I'd love there to be one big streaming site that's just dedicated to horror movies and exploitation and uh, and things like that, and actually have it be big. I mean, there are some that are available that are rather small, uh, but you know, yeah. one that just really caters to and specialises in those kinds of movies, and is you know something you could get on all your devices, you know, your iPad, your your PlayStation Four, um, whatever it may be. I think that would be wonderful, really, to be able to stream any horror movie you might think of. There is one in the UK. I can't remember the name of it, but they they're not available on streaming devices, which unfortunately is the whole point of it for me. Yeah. I, I don't want to. I don't want to sit at my computer and watch films. I want to, you know watch it on a TV through me Amazon box or something. So, But anyway, uh, sorry, Andrew. Yes, good stuff. <laughs> Thanks for your feedback. Hey, listen, <laughs> I've just realised that the, the reason why these feedback sections are so long is because we just keep talking about the points that people make, you know. But I guess, you know, I guess that's not, not a bad thing at all, really, because we want you all to feel as if we've taken some time to really pour over the feedback you sent in, because it means a lot to us. Uh, that's going to be the end of the show, though, folks. Uh, if you want to send in some feedback so that we can read it or play it on the show, uh, you can send it to feedback at strangeanddeadly.com. Now, if you send audio, try not to make it any longer than four minutes, just so it's not, you know, taking up a big portion of portion of the podcast uh of course you can send an email in uh, again you know so keep it fairly you know a couple of paragraphs would be great um you can send that in again feedback at strangedeadly.com you can find us on twitter at uh, strange deadly no and in there just uh, at strange deadly tom where can they find you i'm grindhouse tom and i probably haven't tweeted for about three weeks so there you go yeah if you get a tweet from tom consider it <laughs> consider it a very special yeah. event doesn't that you might as well frame it because <laughs> it'll probably be the only one you ever get absolutely but i still remember the f- one of the first tweets i ever got from you was you offering to send me a scan of uh, an article that in which I, my old show Gore boy radio had been mentioned by uh, eileen daly and um, that's right and dark side yeah and our love affair began from there um, well, I consider it that way, Tom. You, not so keen. <laughs> uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at the Goreboy, and uh, you can find me on Instagram uh, at the Chris Clayton. I tend to post, you know, releases and things I bought on there and uh, different things. It's a bit of Batman. I'm a big Batman fan. Gaming stuff like that, and also some of the new releases I got in recently. Uh, so you can check that out. And uh, Tom, of course, there's a website, gentlemansgrindhouserecords.com. There's a lot going on there. Anything happening at the moment that you want to tell people about? Very little. <laughs> How exciting! Brandy and... <laughs> well, Brandy and Dave always keeping their end up with their 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 podcast over there, the Dark Corner. But, um, you know, I've been doing a, a couple of little unboxings on YouTube and stuff on the uh, the YouTube channel, Gentleman's Grand House Records. Um, but no, things are starting to settle down a bit now. So I've, I've done a Twilight Zone podcast a couple of weeks ago. I've got loads of interviews in the can that I just need to get round to putting out on Gentleman's Grand House Radio. But, you know, sit tight, folks. You know, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah, and are these new interviews or are these all the older archived ones? 
Well, these are old archived ones. You know, my my plan with it was to kind of do new ones and then an old one and then a new. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because there's some there's some gold there, and I don't mean me, but the the people who I'm talking. I mean, Kane Hodder was great. Um, there's people like Rob Zombie on it, which was only a short one, but he was quite interesting. Uh, Caroline Williams from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 was fantastic. But anyway, we'll see. We'll see how it goes in the future. Okay, yeah, do make sure you check out Brandy and Dave's show as well, which is called The Dark Corner Podcast, I believe. That's yeah, right. some very interesting stuff on there. And of course, they joined the Grindhouse Grindhouse. They joined the Gentleman's Grindhouse Radio uh, family not too long ago. Uh, and uh, as I always say, uh, if you want to find about anything else I'm doing it's nothing so that is the <laughs> end of uh, this episode of Strange and Deadly Show I had fun talking about slashers now Tom we are veering away from horror for the next two episodes once again this Strange and Deadly list that we take uh, sorry the section three list it takes us all over the place doesn't it where are we going on the next episode you know I'm, I'm kind of glad I like a slasher every now and again but uh, four in a row I'm glad to take one of those little detours that the section three yeah, absolutely. list gives us we're, uh, we're going with a couple of war movies, and they are Aftermath and The Last Hunter, mm-hmm. two films that I've never seen. I know The Last Hunter stars the late, great David Warbeck, and we'll have a lot to say about him, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're available. They're not, they're not super obscure. I mean, Aftermath, you can get for, I think, about a tenner on Amazon. It's an American release. The Last Hunter, it had a release in the UK from Vipco, who, let's face it, weren't the best, but it might just be a case of having to, to get on with it. Yeah. Um, I, I think there is also an American release, but... Um, so, yeah, you know, you can get hold of them. They're not as obscure as, like, the, the couple of slashes we've done last week. Yeah, and you could also get hold of the porno version of The Last Hunter, The Last Hunter. Oh... <laughs> uh, shut up so, um, I've actually not seen or heard of these two so uh, I'm really looking forward to that yeah something different for us I always like so, I mean in my own personal life I never watch the same kind of movie you know sort of twice in a row I always seem to sort of skip all over the place you know so um, yeah it's uh, our, our viewing habits on this are going in very much the same direction so that's going to be the next episode of the Strange and Deadly show which is going to be our 19th episode we're getting nearer and nearer to the 20th uh, so yeah and oh I forgot to say as well uh, please do if you get a chance head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review or at least a rating if you can't be bothered to write a review you lazy gits uh, not really very inspiring, is it, Tom, to uh, write a review, a positive review after I've just called them lazy kids? I apologise. Uh, but, you know, if you leave us a review, the more reviews you can leave and the more ratings you can give us, the more popular the show becomes. So if you get a chance to do that, you're supporting the show. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, so we'll see you again in another fortnight. And until then, I've been Chris Clayton. And I'm Tom Elliott. And we will see you next time around. Bye for now. Bye.
Curtis was something of a scream, a scream queen. Let me try that again. And so preparations begin for tonight's dance, with the students being unaware of a mysterious figure again dressed in a combat uniform. Making preparations of his own, stalking the local dorms. Oh, fuck, I've just read that wrong. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, you might want to start from uh, <laughs> so preparations begin. Yeah. And so preparations begin for tonight's dance. <laughs> Sorry. And so preparations begin for tonight's dance, with the students being unaware of a mysterious figure Again, dressed in a combat uniform, <coughs> making preparation. Ah, oh, fuck, hold on. And, oh, wow, what the fuck? <laughs>